Geopolitics and Empires, joined by Stavrula Pops, who's a writer, comedian, media PhD student at the National and Kapodistrian University of Athens. Her writing has appeared in publications including Propaganda and Focus, Reductress al Mayadin, and The Gray Zone. Uh, you can keep up with her work by subscribing to her Substack at stavrulapops.substack.com. The links are in the description. Welcome to Geopolitics and Empires, Stavrula. Hi, thanks so much for having me. You've been doing great uh, work. I, I've been catching some of your stuff over at uh, Whitney Webb's Unlimited Hangout, uh, and I've just discovered your uh, Substack. Uh, you did a great recent piece on Proton Mail. Uh, you know anything what you want to add about yourself and the work uh, that you're doing? Essentially, it's what you said. I do focus on geopolitics, and these days I've kind of focused a little bit more on the sec intersections between geopolitics and tech, as well as geopolitics and. Uh, finance, as I do believe that these are kind of things that a lot of people get into the geopolitics space and then get a little bit intimidated by the topic. So I think it's really critical that we focus on the, in, that intersection as much as we can. So other than that, I'm a stand-up comedian and I just enjoy going to open mics. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe you can tell us some jokes to lighten the, the dark mood that we're all in uh, as we're facing all these uh, tyrannical threats, right? CBDCs and and whatnot. And I think you're right to focus on, uh, you know, tech, technocracy and geopolitics and something that I've been focusing a lot uh, on hmm. in the past many years in this podcast, because I, I view this as the main um, threats coming at us. And you've been writing about CBDCs. You you had a piece as CBDCs roll out elite back digital payment systems vie to build the global payment standard and so we're witnessing the building of this global infrastructure that will be used um you know we could look at the book of revelation where you where you won't be able to buy or sell you know we, we saw the ecb announced recently saying hey if you're not down with the green ideology you can't work here right mm -hmm. so we saw during covid what happened you you literally couldn't uh, buy or sell. Uh, and so uh, maybe to get your thoughts on what is happening with the whole CBDC project. Sure. Um, I, the point of this main piece that I wrote is that we're seeing a lot of CBDC pilots ongoing. If you check out the Atlantic Council's CBDC tracker, I think countries representing 98% of today's uh, GDP are now exploring, testing, developing, or rolling out a CBDC. And what's critical about this is that if you do a further dive in who's participating in these pilots and why, what you'll notice is that a lot of crypto players uh, are participating in CBDC pilots. It's quite a common phenomenon. I've noticed that I, when I noticed this, I realized it deserved more it deserves more coverage because I hadn't realized it until I had done some reporting on uh, Ukraine some time ago. And what I had noticed was, wow, okay, Ukraine's developing a CBDC. This is developed by something called the Stellar Development Foundation, which also has its own cryptocurrency, the Stellar Lumen. So the point is, uh, crypto participation in CBDC pilots, in my view, and I don't want to talk super generally about cryptocurrencies, but it forces us to ask questions about major crypto players in the space. Are they really interested in things like financial freedom and decentralized finance like they say they are? Or are they actually interested in building these infrastructures because they would like to be able to use these infrastructures and these payment protocols in projects like CBDCs that give them influence over the future of finance, right? To me, you know, if your cryptocurrency protocol, if your digital payment uh, protocol facilitates the world's CBDCs, in my opinion, that means you're more powerful than countries. And, and I think that's actually quite clear when you look into some of these crypto players, what they've been doing and what they've been saying over the years. So for this piece, I had picked... I mean, you could do a deep dive in anybody in the crypto space, but unfortunately, sometimes you just got to limit and say, all right, I've noticed these players, Stellar, Ripple and Ethereum in particular, are quite involved in some capacity in crypto, in, sorry, in CBDC pilots. And in short, a deep dive of their activities or the people behind them, Ethereum is a little bit different because no one can own the Ethereum protocol. But 
in my opinion, a lot of the people behind these projects are very much interested in influence and power over the financial uh, financial infrastructure of tomorrow. And that does mean through CBDCs, if those occur, I will add the caveat. I didn't really talk about this so much in the piece, though I did bring it up. Uh, I recommend people check out Mark Goodwin and Whitney Webb's reporting on recent uh, trends, especially regarding plans for like the U.S., uh, stable coin where perhaps we won't get a CBDC as many people understand it, but maybe it will come out in a similar format like a stable coin where you essentially have all the same problems as CBDCs, uh, where you have programmability and surveillance, but now uh, facilitated by the private sector. So I think an important trend essentially to talk about here is that, yes, governments are obviously clearly interested in uh, Infrastructure, including CBDCs and synthetic CBDC equivalents, like I just mentioned. Um, you know, this is also a situation, though, where there's, um, shoot, I just lost my train of thought. I, I was talking about, um, I, I was talking about CBDCs. There, oh, there interest, there's, there's interest in CBDCs from governments. But this is also coming a lot from the private sector, and I think that that's especially happening through cryptocurrency players. So I think people worried about CBDC should look at private actors in this space, namely a lot of crypto players. That, that's one of the keys to unlocking this. You know, they don't call it public-private partnership for nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just pretty fascistic. Um, uh, I had Martin Armstrong on my TNT radio show a couple of weeks back, and he was talking about this he said it's in china the state just issues the cbdc direct uh and it's done and we can't do that in the west because of some paperwork uh known as you know the constitution and this stuff mm -hmm. and so it's going to be outsourced to the private sector as you're describing yes. it and actually mark uh i i should be having mark on my tnt show soon um okay. uh, as well to, to talk more about this and you write in your article uh, you know, I love some of the stuff you write. I'll, I'll just read some quotes here. You write, quote, that crypto players like Ripple and Stellar use similar language while simultaneously pushing for increased stakes in the future financial system signals that they are not detractors from the elite's goals for the financial system. Instead, they are advancing um, their cause. And yes, you mentioned Ripple. It's funny, uh, during the, the past couple of years in alt media, Ripple and XRP has been pushed a lot, which is, which has kind of been suspicious. And in the mm -hmm. past, we, we've seen things like I've spoken to Mark Yevtovich of Easy DNS and um, the the capitalist bomb thrower out in Canada, and he 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 was the first to posit that many governments are going to, as you write about as well, they're going to use the private sector. He was saying that you're going to see governments use, like he, for example, he said Ethereum as the foundation for their CBDCs. And after he told me that, and then, or he wrote about it, a week later, it was some European central bank that said, hey, we're going to try out Ethereum as the foundation for our CBDC instead of building it um, themselves. And I used to live in Kazakhstan, and I've read mm -hmm. about Kazakhstan doing uh, experiments where they were going to use like Binance or, or, or other private yeah. enterprises as foundations for their CBDC experiments. And so... Um, yeah, so, so so your further thoughts on, um, I, I think the key here is interoperability. So where there is going to be this sort of like seeming decentralized network where it's going to be um, some pu public efforts mixed with these, you know, private cryptos. But in the end, it's going to all connect together to still give us this totalitarian system, no? Uh, that's a good question. I suppose it's a little bit difficult at the moment to see how all of this is going to shake out. Obviously, there has been a lot of talk about making CBDCs interoperable and even at the international level, right? So I think that that is a goal. And I do think, um, I think this is debatable, but I think there is an amount of competition happening, obviously, between these crypto players for these, uh, pilot projects for these reasons, right? Just as there's kind of a competition between a lot of uh, players in the stablecoin space to like take on a US public-private uh, CBDC equivalent, right? So I think that there's some competition going on too. So it's a little bit difficult for us to say exactly how it's going to happen, 
But, you know, if you look at, again, it's something similar. It's what we've just said. It looks like a lot of these crypto players are pretty competitive about getting CBDC pilots. Uh, Ripple has kind of bragged, oh, we've had talks with a dozen governments to be on these pilots. So perhaps if it is the case that uh, only a few protocols are used in the final CBDCs that are produced and rolled out, assuming they are produced and rolled out, which, again, remains to be seen, but... I think we can say that it's quite likely that they will go forward in many countries just based on how many countries are trying them out right now. So I suppose my answer to you is that I bet it's a goal. And I think that these crypto players being used somewhat universally in ways that are well known makes them possible players to facilitate these CBDCs in ways that could be made interoperable in the future, but it's just a little too hard to say at the moment. I think there's enough competition. Yeah, and, and, and you know, you, you are right. It's still sort of early in the game, but I just kind of feel like this is where it's moving toward. Uh, again, mm-hmm. you, you write, quote, rather than facilitating CBDCs themselves, governing bodies could collaborate with private companies that instead issue and facilitate stable coins on their behalf. Stable coins could ultimately enable the same programmability and surveillance concerns CBDCs pose to the public, but would instead be operated by the world's wealthiest bankers and financiers rather than central banks. You talk about JP Morgan uh, as no less than a financial, a new financial services paradigm um, or touted by JP Morgan, where deposit tokens are like a digital version of the deposited money in a person's bank account, but programmable and facilitated through a blockchain based um, ledger, uh, so on. And, and, um, so forth and it's funny they always talk about financial inclusion and mm-hmm. my view here is that the real game and they use these double meanings where oh not everyone's bank especially in the third world and so we need financial inclusion we need everybody to be in this digital system and then i view that as financial inclusion equals financial exclusion because right now people have the choice to be included or excluded but if everyone is included in their system, then there will come a point where the powers that be can exclude you if you don't do what they mm. like. No? Yeah. And I actually think the language that they use is very important for us to talk about. A, actually, this is a pretty specific thing that I find very interesting. If you go to uh, Ripple's X account, uh, what they put as their headline is saying, it's literally saying, I have quote here with me, our mission is to build breakthrough crypto solutions for a world without economic borders. And they consistently use, Stellar also had uh, this like Stellar real world campaign where they very much make it about providing opportunities to people in countries where those economic opportunities don't exist. So they they make it sound like it's very altruistic. Oh, we're going to help the world's poor break down financial barriers, right? They're using this altruistic, almost philanthropic language to make it sound like their infrastructures are about helping people. And I think what's frustrating about this is that a lot of people that are in the crypto space Uh, I'm not really in the crypto space. I'm just a journalist with a computer, to be honest. But, you know, people that are interested in things like cryptocurrency are often interested in them because they want decentralized finance and they want the ability to say, this is how I want to facilitate my money. I would like to keep it further away from banks. The problem is that, you know, if we're not careful about who we do business with, even if it's decentralized finance, it seems like we're unfortunately working with groups like Stellar and Ripple, um, who I think are particularly bad about they're pushing financial inclusion. They're pushing decentralized finance. But, you know, I I think a lot of it's about a power grab. And if you'd like, I can talk a little bit more about the history of the companies and the people behind them, because Jed McCaleb, who started helped to start both of them, is I think he's a megalomaniac that wants to play God, to be quite honest. You know, and that needs to be talked about because it seems like a lot of the people developing these protocols that are very powerful uh, they seem to want they want influence over the f- the future of finance. And Jed McCaleb wants interest. In, it, 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 he's interested in other things. 
He currently is funding something called VASC, for example, which is like privatizing space exploration. It's a little bit wild. I mean, and it, to me, that just kind of reflects poorly on him, but it also reflects poorly on why is he in the crypto space? I don't think that it's for altruistic purposes. Yeah, well, yeah, we, we, you know, we, we can get further into that, uh, you know, and I think that's one very strong suit you have um, in your research, uh, as well as uh, Whitney Webb is linking together a lot of these um, names and, and companies, you know, everything from the, the, the and I think they're relatively small networks that work together, mm -hmm. the Palantirs, the, the Peter Thiel's, uh, the Elon Musk's, um, and all the, you know, all these other people that, that you go into. And I think by, by and large, you know, it's money and, and, and power. Uh, so some yeah. of these companies that you, you know, as one example, they're willing, I think, to give up any, uh, you know, integrity or philosophy that they had to make the big money to get, to get in on, uh, all of this, uh, as well as, you know, they have these post-human transhumanist, uh, ideas of, uh, immortality and stuff. I was at Anarchapulco last week and there were attendees who believe, um, in, in, um, gene uh, edit uh, biohacking themselves and transhumanism and living forever and all this stuff and so yeah if you want to if you want to go further uh, you know what's interesting for you when it comes to some of these um companies uh and then who's behind them sure um i suppose i can talk a little bit more about jed mccaleb because he's involved with both ripple and stellar and then i can get a little bit more into my concerns about ethereum also uh, to start off with both Ripple and Stellar, and I cover this in the article, but what's interesting is that they're kind of rivals because essentially Jed McCaleb had helped found Ripple. It was originally called OpenCoin in 2012, and essentially he got mad at the company for a variety of reasons because, well, Jed McCaleb has kind of a history of being bad at business. You know, he he once had led, for example, Mt. Gox, which was once, I think, the world's largest Bitcoin exchange, and it went belly up. Uh, I think a lot of his co-workers at Ripple ultimately didn't trust him, and he made kind of inappropriate business decisions. He was essentially trying to involve his girlfriend, Joyce Kim, at the time uh, in the company's affairs, even though she didn't really have a role in it. And I think that Jed McCaleb realized this. He doesn't like it. He wants to leave Ripple and he tries to get Stripe, uh, yes, yeah, Stripe Tech to take over. That deal follows, falls through. And he kind of has this like, this company isn't, isn't big enough for the two of us type thing with his, his co-founder, Chris Larson. So inevitably, Jed McCaleb leaves because the rest of the team won't oust Larson. Uh, he gets mad. He starts Stellar and um, Stellar's code. This is very funny to me, but it's really interesting. Also, Stellar's code seems to be essentially shoplifted from Ripple. Also, if you look at 2015 reporting in the Observer, it's reported at the time that there were like 177 circumstances where the code still said like Stellar's code still said Ripple. So clearly that he just kind of took this. He shoplifted it. He made some cute little changes. And now he's like, ah, we have a new thing. It's called Stellar. And now we're using the Stellar Development Foundation, which is a nonprofit. So Stellar's language is very altruistic in particular, and it almost tries to take on like a humanitarian language in its tone. So Jed McCaleb is over here now trying to make his look work look nicer at a new company, even though I think it's still the same person still can't fundamentally be trusted. And again, despite Stellar's uh, language of humanitarianism and altruism, they even are like running, if I remember correctly, Stellar has partnered with like the UNHCR to like do crypto humanitarianism in Ukraine. A little bit gross if you ask me, but okay. But they're using this language while also very much pushing uh, Stellar as a future CBDC um, you know, facilitator, right? They have a white paper for it. They have all the bells and whistles and they're taking on a number of pilots. So uh, what's also interesting about Jed McCaleb, I had mentioned this earlier. I think he's a megalomaniac. His other projects suggest that he wants to play God. Um, like I had said earlier, he started a company that's literally about private uh, space endeavors. They want to launch a private ship into space. I think the company is called Vast. 
Go look into that if you want to learn about how they're going to try to make zero gravity happen. I, I don't know. Um, he's also helped. He's also currently helping his current romantic partner uh, launch a private science foundation, which is literally about changing how science is being done. It's like for-profit science. He also has something called um, Astera, where they're literally doing, as you said, it's like they're doing things like um, experiments about extending lifespans, longevity. They're also doing a lot of things regarding, um, I don't know too much about the intersection between AI and neuroscience, unfortunately, but they're trying to do a lot of brain science to boost AI to make it more like the brain is what I understand. So altogether, this guy has funded a lot of projects uh, that could make really substantial changes to society, right? He has the money to invest whatever he would like in. Uh, it doesn't really matter to him that he has a history of business failures. In my opinion, he thinks he has the right to play God. And in the financial space, I think to him, he's literally used the word like internet level protocol to describe the work Stellar is doing. So he knows that this work he's doing could have profound changes for society. He thinks he has the right to do it. And he he essentially thinks that he he has enough money that he can do that himself or with the help of a few others. So that's a little bit more on him. I encourage people to look a little bit more into him and the history of both Ripple and Stellar because it's quite I think it's kind of funny because they're kind of rivals now. But it's an interesting history. Um, if you'd like, I can also discuss a little bit more about Ethereum because it is a little bit different than some other crypto players. Yeah, and I, I would just add, I feel like. I mean, this is my view. I'm speculating a bit and extrapolating, but there, you know, there's. Um, it's been said that Bill Gates didn't really come up with uh, Microsoft Windows; that he bought it. Um, I don't know if it was DOS or Windows, but early on, uh, it was created by someone else. He just bought it out and pawned it as as his. I'm a firm believer that uh, you know Facebook was DARPA LifeLog, and Zuckerberg is just the front man. Um, mm -hmm. And then you don't with all of these other characters and that kind of reminds me of what you're saying where they were riffing uh, Stellar was r ripping off um, Ripple and uh, you know a lot of what we're seeing today Elon Musk um, I, I also think in many ways he, he's a front man he you know he gets all the contracts from the Department of, of Defense and you, you, in the late 90s X was planned right mm -hmm. and, and and now he bought x you know he had x.com since 1999 paypal all of these things were, were you know really war gamed out decades uh ago and so i i just as you mentioned it's in the crypto space we're starting to see the same trends that we've seen with all these companies that we've grown to love and hate uh now <laughs> uh, uh but um yeah yeah further thoughts on ethereum i think that's also going to be uh important going forward yeah and again like when i talk about these like i think i know the terminology behind crypto pretty well but who knows if i'll make an occasional mistake but with ethereum i think what's critical there's several there's several things that are critical i think it's a little bit different than many players in the crypto space uh the ethereum protocol is something that no one formally owns right so it's not like ethereum can advocate for itself to be a cbdc pilot like stellar or ripple or yeah stellar or ripple could right so it's a little bit different and i want to use slightly different language with it in that respect at the same time there are serious political problems with ethereum and Funny enough, I did not know this when I wrote this article. I cannot believe this. I learned this afterwards. Uh, Vitalik Buterin, the person who has created Ethereum, he, one of his first founders, believe it or not, was the same Peter Thiel. That's, you know, the, the, the Peter Thiel. Um, what had happened was Peter Thiel, obviously infamous venture capitalist, he does these 100K uh, fellowships or grants to essentially very young geniuses. He says to them, I give you $100,000 if you drop out of college and make whatever you'd like. So Vitalik Buterin was a recipient of one of those grants like 10, 10 years ago, yes. And so that money was put towards Ethereum. So I didn't know this when I wrote the article, but that funding from the beginning forces us to ask even more questions about whether Ethereum's been captured from day one. 
Uh, I don't know. Obviously, we don't necessarily know what exact relationship Peter Thiel and Vitaly Buterin have. I would love to research that more. But that obviously, to me, is a little bit suspicious. Now, what else has happened with Ethereum? Again, it's a protocol that no one formally owns. And a lot of its language has been pretty uh forward about decentralization and even about like subtracting power if you go to its website and whatnot. Uh, I also can just say briefly, like the protocol generally is known for smart contracts, kind of like a vending machine. You put money into the machine, you get product kind of like this, but it can be used for things more than money. Uh, I think that Ethereum had lost a lot of its whatever decentralization beforehand. I think that it had lost this decentralization as a protocol when it had moved on from proof of work validation to proof of stake, which I covered in the article, because proof of work essentially to validate a, a process, you're just using a lot of computational effort. And so what had happened was Ethereum had kind of done this talk of uh, sustainability, unfortunately. They were like, ah, we're going to move from proof of work to proof of stake to eliminate most of our computational or environmental output, right? And the problem with this is that if you move from proof of work to proof of stake, you're now shifting the responsibility of validating transactions to stakeholders who could then theoretically if the stakeholders have enough stake in Ethereum, they could theoretically collude to um, move the direction of the protocol in that their way. And that's significant politically speaking, because it means that it's not really decentralized anymore. And, you know, in this respect, we, you know, say what you will about Vitalik Buterin. He's actually spoken out about against CBDCs lately. I'm not sure how much that matters. But, you know, Joe Lubin, who was the co-founder of Ethereum, he now runs uh, CoSensus, which is um, it's essentially a private blockchain software that runs on Ethereum. But he's been pushing for Ethereum to be a CBDC facilitator for quite some time now. He's aggressively pushing it. At the same time, it's supposed that he owns five to 10 percent of the current Ether in circulation. So and and I think I mentioned this in the article, a lot of people are kind of buying large amounts of, ethe of Ether at the moment so that they apparently so that they can have uh, influence over what the protocol does, whether that means in politics, whether that means to make them a lot of money or both, whatever it is. I don't necessarily know, but the, what we're saying here is it's become unfortunately more centralized and probably in a way that benefits the power elite who would like to have direction over the protocol and how it's used in the future. So it's kind of a complicated case. Uh, if people would like to debate me on this topic, I am very glad to do it because it is complicated. Um, but it, essentially, I believe, politically speaking, it is very compromised. And to be honest, I think a lot of cryptocurrencies have problems with centralization generally, which to me means they are not uh, politically viable as neutral instruments, right, for financial uh, decentralization or financial freedom. Yeah, I, I'm not like yourself big on crypto. I, I kind of view <laughs> many, many of these crypto cryptocurrencies as pyramid schemes um in a way because many if not most um you know they were just created mm -hmm. digitally and it's 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 a pyramid pyramid scheme type of thing i mean i i know people who've been involved in some of these coins that were fraudulent um wow. from the outset and, and they lost uh money it's it's just a pyramid scheme um in, in in many ways i view it as people doing what the bankers do you know we just create a digital bank and print the money digitally and and it's it's kind of that sort of thing i know i know some people are probably gonna leave uh, negative comments there <laughs> but uh, <laughs> i, I want to move to a little bit more towards the end game you write quote it's not hard to imagine cbdc's becoming interoperable to a point where only a few or even one global digital currency of course operated by the power elite could become um the norm and for a long time people have been talking about imf special drawing rights which they are pushing sort of to be a behind the scenes like the one world global currency what would be the imf sdr and then other currencies would be linked to that you know we might even have a bifurcated 
uh, Orwellian like world where Orwell talks about in 1984, like two or three blocks uh, that form the basis for like a world government. So you might have like in the West, IMF, the SDRs in the East, you might have like the BRICS um, backed the currency, which would be the same thing. They might have one currency um, and then others linked to it. Uh, or, you know, regionals, regions, you've got like ASEAN, you know, you got EU, the currency, you got ASEAN, the Southeast Asian Union, and they've uh, expressly been discussing how they, you know, they're trying to create like a digital ledger in ASEAN where they'd have one currency in ASEAN and and um, the national currencies linked to that. And, and, you know, it's Lord of the Rings, one one ring to rule them all. Uh, you know, how do you how do you view if we try to think about the end game, would they try to create one global cbdc or link um you know different countries to cbdc's together or you know um and and any thoughts on on where they might try and go sure this is a little bit what i said at the beginning it's a little hard for us to say exactly how this will shake up just because right now there is a lot of power competition uh power competition let's say behind between these crypto players and there is kind of a cbdc uh, boom right now where it's a little bit it seems like there's kind of a cbdc race in my opinion where countries are kind of developing cbdc's um you know partially i think partially for the reasons we've discussed politically where they do want to have uh the powers that come with cbdc's but some of it's just a race where you know if your country doesn't have a cbdc and everybody else's country does you could face some problems, right? So I think there's a CBDC race in general. On top of that, there's a CBDC pilot race that I highlight in this piece. So there's a lot of power competition going on right now that makes it hard for me to say for sure what I think will go on. At the same time, I really do think that a lot of people in this space want as much interoperability as possible, like we discussed at the beginning, because interoperability makes things just that much easier uh, in terms of, you know, if you want to facilitate things a certain way, now you can. Uh, not just in your country, but in your block of countries, or if things really boil all the way down everywhere. It, it, it's a little bit hard to say. I do think, practically speaking, while I do think that's a goal of theirs, it may take a long time just because, again, there is a competition. And if these things turn out where, you know, there's different CBDC players or different infrastructures it's difficult then to override that. It makes things rougher. We don't know how it will turn out. But in my opinion, yeah, I do think the long game is developing digital payment structures that make this as simple as possible for, uh, in short, the power elite to do whatever they would like. It's, it's hard to say how that will go. But I suppose if we think about the general dangers regarding CBDCs, I know your audience knows this stuff very well. But you know, regarding programmability, where your money could get shut off if you're a political problem, let's say, or otherwise interfered with, or just mass surveillance. Um, this is clearly a goal of theirs. And that's dangerous wherever it's implemented, because the moment a government decides to say, I'm going to become abusive with these functions, this means that many people could become politically disempowered uh, immediately, right? So to me, yeah, the, these are powers that they would like with the financial system anywhere, wherever they can make this reality. Sure, why not? It, it, some of it's just difficult for me to speculate upon at the current time. I think a lot of this is developing rapidly. And my advice to people, unfortunately, is to read more about crypto to see how this stuff is developing in real time. I used to never pay attention to crypto. I'm more of a geopolitics person myself. But now I try to keep up with it because I'm trying to understand how this stuff is occurring in real time and how that's going to apply in the future. This I can't really get into in too much detail. I would also, again, recommend people check out some of the recent reporting Mark Goodwin and Whitney Webb have been doing on like tokenization, because I think that that's also a major uh, direction the power elite would like to move into where everything becomes uh, a commodity on the ledger. But I'm not sure I can talk about that in too much detail. But when we're looking at this, these larger financial future, uh, financial system plans to discuss there's several layers we can always pray for a solar 
flair and and maybe just to extrapolate a bit a bit more your thoughts on the wider game here uh because you know you've got cbds i call it as as um i've stolen the term from my past guest again edwin black the algorithm ghetto people call it a social credit system i know in the russian speaking world they like to call it the cyber gulag the digital or electronic concentration camp uh and so you've got cbdc's you've got digital aid id uh, every country now is rolling out these uh, digital id programs some are making them mandatory i just heard from someone in australia that said they were forced to now create their digital id account because without doing that they wouldn't be able to report their taxes and so you've got digital id cbdc you know this technocracy social mm. credit um system and we some of us experienced it during um covid 1984 i know in greece it was insane um yeah and the, the, the like you couldn't even drive your car uh even parts of mexico you couldn't even buy food uh without the digital um total recall passes and so um and you know we're getting people debanked now i'm off of patreon and paypal and so what um i'm i'm kind of pessimistic i just kind of i view this as all it's it's proceeding uh, advancing and and as you lay out you know there are it's like it's like two steps forward one step back yeah um, and you know what you we shouldn't relent we should just we should do our best to push back against this but i don't see it going very well for us and any further thoughts on this sort of like the the bigger picture of of um the system they're trying they're trying to create and and um how, how you see them advancing with this sort of social credit system I, it's hard. Again, it's hard for me to say for sure. I do think a lot of things are up in the air. And in some ways, believe it or not, I'm kind of optimistic for a couple of reasons, just because I do think that there are a lot of things that still have to go correctly for the power elite if they're pushing things like CBDCs and synthetic CBDCs or CBDC equivalents. Um, you know, people have to like them. Clearly in the United States, I think part of the reason they're going with like a synthetic CBDC or they're going to try to do that is because they know people are like, ew, we don't want CBDCs. Um, you know, there's a lot of room for failure here, which me leads me to be a little bit more optimistic, though. I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't be afraid and I'm not saying we shouldn't fight this because we have to. I'm saying that at least I do feel like they have to to make a lot of things happen and fall in place. Um, I'm also not, I am afraid of them again, because I know that these plans are dangerous, but at the end of the day, I think most of the people advancing these things are political cowards with no morals. So I'm not really afraid of them because I know they're losers. Like that sounds stupid, but I, I actively think that they're losers in life. They know that they're doing the wrong thing. And, um, you know, what they're doing, they know it sounds ridiculous, which makes me, you know, when I talk about geopolitics, I now just feel like I have to say all this stuff that sounds insane, but that's because their plans are insane. They're not human. Anybody with a heart or a mind can say, you know, this isn't really right. So I, I think that there are reasons for optimism. It does require us to stick together and it does require us to do the work, but I, there are reasons to be optimistic. But that being said, you're right. Um, a lot of things are proceeding. It is what I had said earlier that, you know, the CBDC tracker on the Atlantic Council, it is a very good resource, even if I don't like the Atlantic Council. Um, you know, as I had said earlier, countries representing 98% of, uh, global GDP are now in some phase of developing CBDCs, and in many cases, crypto players are behind it. Um, that's bad. They know that they most people don't want CBDCs, but we're now kind of in a state of politics generally where the power elite don't really care if we approve of them or not. Well, they, they care, but they're very afraid of us, I think, but they, they're still going to try to do it, right? They're actively trying to do it. They're actively proceeding however they can. Um you know, it, it, it's unfortunately that type of reality. And I think going back to like the crypto space, um, I think, I, unfortunately, again, things like my article kind of force a general uh, question as to whether, you know, our, our crypto protocol is really about financial freedom and decentralized finance, or are they about developing infrastructures the power elite can then use for means of manipulation, surveillance, control? Um, 
you know, this leads us to say also, um, you know, gee, I don't have, it's not like I have every suggestion possible, but if you're, if you use crypto, if you own any crypto, if you're involved, I think it's very critical that you take a look at what you're doing. Do you actually agree with the ethics of the people that have built the cryptocurrency protocols you now use? Because I think if, People in the crypto space, I don't own any crypto. So despite the fact that I read a lot about it, I, I own zero. But I think if you own any crypto, I I think that it's probably a good idea to, you know, pol become politically vocal about it because cryptocurrency does clearly have a role in the future of finance. Therefore, it has the future in the role of politics. So I think we have, though, further ammo, because if you're not happy with these protocols, you can stop using them. You can publicly complain. Um, you know, we do have some tools in our pocket, but I, I agree with you that unfortunately a lot of the, the tech that can facilitate things is rolling out. Um, as you had said earlier, things like digital ID, which goes kind of hand in hand with CBDCs, that's becoming uh, a huge industry. I, I don't know too much about the, the European status on that. I had done some research on digital uh, wallets being considered last year. So I know some of this uh, adjacent stuff, unfortunately, is accelerating. But I do think we have a lot of leverage, but it requires us to be vigilant. It requires us to read. And it requires us to be able to say no to things when we can. So I think that people are in, in the crypto space, for example, if you feel that the people that have facilitated the crypto you use are trying to use it for bad purposes, it's on you, I think, to try to say, hey, I don't like this, actually. Any, any thoughts on how we can uh, further resist and uh, as well as survive this the, these sort of systems? A lot of people I talk to, um, you know, they talk about using cash as much as you can, although I think even there might come a point where they could, powers that be, could just... You know, even if we still have cash, they can tomorrow use some crisis event and say, you know, you got to now pay with QR codes or your phones or whatever. Um, and a lot of people talk about going analog as much as possible, mm -hmm. uh, getting running for the hills, having a plan B, farmland with food and water. Just um, any further thoughts, maybe people that you've uh, spoken to or, or what you've uh, observed in terms of uh, any further ways to stave off the dystopia? Uh, as well as um, uh, try to survive <laughs> within the dystopia. Yeah, I, this is a question I think some about. I, I think like at heart, to be honest, I'm a little bit of a normie. Like, again, I'm just a, I'm a stand up comedian that just wants to go to open mic. So like part of me is just like I'm in my house writing jokes. Why do we have to do this right now? Um, OK, that, that being said, um, you know, I, I do think it's important to think about what you can do in your personal life. Obviously, I support using cash when you can. Uh, I also I know Whitney Webb talks a lot about thinking about digital equivalents for things that we can use. I think this is a difficult topic, and I have tried to be mindful about this lately. And that kind of like led partially me, to me writing the piece on Proton Mail that we can talk a little bit about because. A lot of people are like, I will divest from Google, for example. I will get a better email account or something. And then, you know, so I, I was actually, I do have a Proton Mail address right now. I, I need to figure out what I'm going to do about this. But, um, you know, so a lot of people then will be like, okay, I divest from Google. I will now use Proton Mail. Then you learn it's compromised also. <laughs> but I, I think those types of divestments are important. It's aware of, for, it's important for us to be aware of how influential a lot of these services unfortunately are in our daily lives. And I suppose personally, like for me, a lot of it is about spreading the word about how these technologies are dangerous. Because I think if I think a lot about a lot of my friends in my day-to-day -day life, it's not a common topic of discussion. So I write, I share my work with them. Even if you don't write, I think it's good to show your friends your political opinions. Um, maybe they've heard them before, maybe they haven't. Um, and I, I think there's some urgency to that because unfortunately some of this stuff is just happening rapidly. Uh, I don't know. I think people need to do what makes them most comfortable. Also, like I said, I'm kind of a normie. Like, I'm not sure I will ever leave, like, 
a city, for example, to go live off the grid. I'm probably just not going to do that. Like me and my cat will die here. I don't know. But I think you also have to be thinking like, okay, if you want to live uh, according to certain principles, how can you prepare for a life that allows you to do that when political uh, systems become more restrictive? Uh, how can you do that? I, I don't know. Some of that is kind of what your your personal preferences allow. But I do also think it's about community, being with other people, having important contacts of, in your life, regardless of whether you agree on everything or not. And so when things get difficult, you have people to rely upon and that you don't need to do whatever the state tells you. And I, I think that that community building aspect is important. Uh, if I'm not typing inside, I try to spend a lot of time with my friends and family and my loved ones because I think this interconnectedness will save us through whatever political crisis is ongoing, even if I don't agree with them, you know? Yeah. When, when I ask my guests for solutions, one of the most it's common, so hard. Yeah. They talk about uh, community and networking. And when I, I was thinking about this the other day, often people are saved um, in, in certain circumstances by someone they know who knows someone, um, yeah. you know, and so, um, that that's important just knowing people who, who who can help you with solutions you know this goes back throughout history and i i like to joke as well uh I, i'm gonna laugh uh, on the way to the gulag whether whether it's the physical gulag or the uh you know the algorithm mm-hmm. ghetto or or gulag and uh you know yourself as a comedian that's all we can do if we get to that point and i do want to get your thoughts on proton mail but real quick before that i was noticing on your sub stack uh, I think through your Substack, I came uh, to a piece of uh, uh, Oliver Boyd Barrett's Substack, and I've read his stuff like 10, 10 plus years ago uh, on the interconnection between the the, the state and and I think um, media. But he wrote something interesting. I just want to get your quick thoughts on multipolarity. Um, he just wrote something where he says it's titled "Globalism versus Imperialism." He says to some yeah. extent. To some extent, elements of the leadership of countries which do not submit to the Washington consensus and are opposed, therefore, to Western privilege and Western empire do subscribe to the efforts that are being made to construct a totalitarian system of global governance. And we've seen in the BRICS world, in the multipolar world, Russia, I've lived in Kazakhstan, Russia, China, implementing this very same exact technocratic systems qr codes digital passports uh, injections some some of them with even greater zeal than in the west and i personally don't see you know i just see multipolarity bricks as the other side of the same coin um and do you have any thoughts there yeah, this is something I, I think about a lot. I, I functionally, I think I would say it probably I'm closer to the opinion that, yeah, I find it to be a farce um, in the long term. I do think that a lot of modern geopolitical conflicts that are ongoing, you know, I think that they are real. I do think that there are genuine fights at the same time, I don't know how much that's going to matter in the very long term, right? And I, I think that, you know, for example, something like the current war in Ukraine, you know, perhaps there are genuine fights between uh, Russia and the United States. I think that they are fighting. I think that they are fighting. But if we look at what's going on in Ukraine, um, you know, a lot of elite efforts towards like the fourth industrial revolution. I've done some reporting on that as well. Um, you know, towards things like the DIA app, um, their, their CBDC and other green, green initiatives. It's like, sure, the United States and Russia fight, but at the same time, it's exactly what you said. Russia has been on board with most of these same very consequential initiatives like digital IDs. CBDC pilots, they also, as you have said, they participated in everything that had happened in, during COVID, which happened in a unilateral way. So I think that this is something that even if I tend to agree that I think multipolarity, I'm not sure it will matter that much in the long term. I do think that there are genuine political conflicts. So it's something where I kind of try to see where I feel about it every day. I do think that multipolarity does mean certain things right now. And uh, I, I don't necessarily want to take away agency from countries that have a lot of uh, vehement anger towards the West after, you know, centuries of colonialism and other forms of exploitation. At the same time, when I see 
um, countries like Russia and China hop on the same fourth industrial revolution initiatives. When I see the power elite functionally agree on most things regarding economics, uh, it forces me to say, okay, in the long term, will this will multipolarity matter in the longer scheme of things? I don't I don't know. I increasingly think no. But I also think that this is a very difficult topic. My cat is attacking my computer. Um, you know, it, it's a difficult topic for those reasons. But I lean towards saying it's a farce long term. Yeah. And, and um, to get then to Proton Mail, um, you know, I use Start Mail uh, and I've interviewed the former um, spokesperson for, for Start Mail a long time ago. Oh. She's gone pretty cold. I don't know. She just disappeared. Uh, Catherine Albrecht was a bit you know she's christian like myself and she was outspoken on the surveillance state and she got cancer i think she survived it but she just maybe she just saw something and she's nowhere uh anymore mm. just, but she dropped out of being start mails start page and start mails spokesperson because some shady stuff that she saw going on where an ad company bought into um start page and like like you know like yourself i still use them but i i'm i have even greater um I'm even more worried about things like Proton Mail. I was always suspicious from the start with Proton Mail, given its history, Switzerland and, and, and MIT, I think, initially. And now you're talking about how uh, Proton Mail is raising money for uh, underwear salesman Elliot Higgins' Bellingcat. And, you know, twice he's he's um, posted about me on, on Twitter. One time I, I got fooled and I shared some fake news from a Russian telegram channel that looked real, looked like a BBC piece. Um, and I deleted it because I retried, I, I realized it was fake. And they, he quote tweeted, he quote tweeted me and it's uncanny his ability. You know, he must be plugged into some NATO operations because literally like as soon as I posted that, literally five seconds later, there's like an Elliot Higgins quote tweet uh, of me. And I'm like, that's not even humanly uh, possible, but you know, Bellingcat is a total farce, a total um, you know, NATO operation. But what you know, what what did you discover looking into Proton Mail um, and and you know their relation to Bellingcat and and uh, what what that means for Proton Mail users? Sure, and okay, I, I I was able to find a lot of this information just with some digging online, and it's hard to say. It's hard to be honest to say anything super, super concrete, but uh, obviously uh, Bellingcat is a known intelligence proxy. You know, there have been emails describing it as this. And I think that if you look at Bellingcat's history, it has traditionally supported intelligence narratives on anything. So they have been suspicious from the beginning. That's Bellingcat. So Proton Mail actively decided to fundraise for them in this, I think in December of 2023. And, you know, if you go to their, their fundraiser, I, I will be fair to them. You know, if you go to their fundraiser, they point out that the community selected uh, the recipient, the recipients of the fundraiser. And that may well be true. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll give credit where it's due, but at the same time, I think that many people using proton mail are using it because it's a privacy forward service supposedly and you know a lot of people that use proton mail therefore are probably aware bellingcat is a is intelligence proxy right so it's kind of odd to me that they would choose it and that they wouldn't expect major backlash from proton users right because if it's a privacy forward user base why is proton being deaf about a uh, tone deaf let's say about why we need to be challenging them. And, you know, Proton Mail, I think they had even gotten back to me a little bit about it over Twitter. And I had asked them over email and they essentially said, according to our, um, I don't remember the ex exactly what they said. You would have to go to my article, but they basically were like, according to our research of reputable sources, quote unquote, uh, we find that Bellingcat is a reasonable organization to work with. That's essentially what they said. The exact quote is in the piece that I wrote from Propaganda in Focus. Um, so they, they're actively defending their choice to work with Bellingcat. They've they've actively stood by that despite people repeatedly pointing out, hey, this is intelligence proxy. All right, that's one decision. 
at the same time, you know, Bellingcat or not Bellingcat, Proton Mail has a history of supporting kind of lopsidedly attempted color revolution. So if I if you look to the article that I had written for Propaganda and Focus, they had been pretty big on supporting the protests going on in Hong Kong a few years ago, which uh, essentially were about advancing U.S. political goals in the region against China. Uh, they had also supported, you know, they had released some articles about supporting Belarus, which again was essentially an attempted color revolution in 2020. Um, I'm not saying that the people that protested their governments uh, don't have genuine gripes against their leaders. I'm not trying to say that at all, but these were both cases where there was clear foreign interference that Proton essentially boosted by publicly supporting them and aggressively. So if you look at the article that I had written, um, uh, Proton had also, um, had, they had like given, they had supported financially Charter 97 for, it's a Belarusian publication that kind of functions like a lot of NED publications that push color revolutions and policy changes in countries right before the West tries to overthrow their government. So it was kind of weird to watch me see Proton Mail actively support an organization that functioned in this respect. Uh, we can't necessarily say too, too much more on that. Um, I don't know that I know of any other clear intelligence links between Proton Mail or anything like this. I, I don't know that. Uh, as you pointed out, though, they are based in Switzerland and there's like a precedent of Swiss like privacy forward messaging apps uh, being intelligence fronts. And I think even Signal, like the news about Signal being an intelligence front essentially was kind of wild or at least having a lot of intelligence funding. Uh, Kit Clarenberg, who is also suspended from X right now, that's bad. He had done some reporting on that for Al Maidina English, where it was revealed that a lot of intelligence funding had propped Signal up from the beginning, which is scary. I mean, I had used Signal in the years past thinking that it was privacy forward, and I feel pretty stupid for not thinking twice about it. I, I think they're able to use this privacy forward language uh, to make activists or uh, other people involved in politics feel at, at ease when really these services uh, maybe deserve some scrutiny. I also think that there are general problems with email and as encryption services, generally speaking. I'm not an expert on this, but I think that emails generally are uh, weak in terms of encryption. I think anybody listening to this should just assume that your emails are not safe. I assume that my emails are not safe, uh, which isn't really great. I don't know. For me as a journalist, I know that whatever I'm writing is going to get published in three weeks. So there's some level of, uh, they will probably see what I say eventually anyways, but it's obviously horrible for most people that would just like to believe that they can use some tech services with some, you know, security and feeling safe and private, essentially. And I just think in general, these services, unfortunately, can't be trusted, Proton included. Um, and it's too bad. I, I, I wish that I had better recommendations. Maybe I will switch to start mail. But uh, it's just upsetting knowing that even Proton Mail, like a lot of people switched to Proton Mail because they thought it would be safe and secure. I think it, it has some political things that are very weird about it. I would love to do more research into whatever intelligence connections it may have, but obviously I don't know for sure. I don't want to say that they do for sure. Yeah. And, you know, something I noticed when I was living in Kazakhstan, start mail is, is banned in um, mm. Russia and Kazakhstan. I had to go through three VPNs. They kept blocking wow. the VPNs to, to access my email. You know, if I buy a flight, I can't even, how do I leave the country? I don't, I don't even, can't even um, get the receipt to my flight purchase. And I noticed Proton Mail is as well as banned in Russia and probably Kazakhstan, which is, again, gives you kind of a clue. Uh, and they use the same lame argument, the Russian government. Oh, that these private emails are used to send fake anonymous bomb threats. It's more like, oh, we can't, oh, we, yeah. they can probably hack like Gmail, the Russian government, but we can't read these. So we need, we can, we, if we can't read it, we need to ban them. Or, or maybe they are Western intelligence fronts, both start mail and, um, proton mail. And you just a funny observation. I never felt comfortable using signal and some shady people 
in the West and alt media have been asking. They, the only way they wanted to contact with me is through Signal. And I'm kind of like, no, why don't we just use email? Why, why are you so obsessed with getting me to use particularly uh, Signal? Uh, and there was something I've noticed. It's funny. So I don't even use WhatsApp or Signal. Um, and I, you know, I'll use Telegram or other foreign services where you know if it's the right i i don't doubt russian government has access to telegram but it's like they're sure. not my government right they they can <laughs> do less point. damage to me than my own government but and when i lived in kazakhstan uh the, the russians and kazakhs there they they were preferring whatsapp and mm. they didn't they don't want to use telegram it's so it's the same principle like we'll use whatsapp because we're not americans and that'll be safer for us than using you know the russian compromised kazakh compromised telegram so it's just funny to see how everyone works uh, in in different parts of the world we've covered um uh, a, a lot of ground uh any uh, you're doing great work and yeah you mentioned unfortunately kit clarenberg is currently banned on um twitter i think syrian girl was suspended as well and so uh, oh. any any final thought uh, for us uh, i think the I guess I'll just briefly say, you know, one of the points of the article, and I kind of want to drive this point home, but I don't want to paint all crypto with a broad brush. I just think that articles like the one I've written force us to ask questions about why cryptocurrencies generally exist. Is this infrastructure about financial freedom and decentralized finance, or is it about facilitating infrastructures that then can be used by the power elite? Uh, I'm not saying don't use it. I'm saying it is time for us to have those conversations. Uh, very briefly, um, I don't want to say anything super concrete. I do think it is worth what I would like to do is investigate more intelligence connections involved in the crypto space. The CIA has actively said that they've like been involved in crypto before and bitcoin secure hash algorithm 256 that makes it so secure was actually developed by somebody affiliated with the nsa uh I i'm not necessarily saying you know, that that sha has been sha 256 has been open for many years so granted if there were a back door it's likely somebody would have found it by now but we still don't know i think that some of these questions are really ripe for questioning um people have been wondering who bitcoin's sakoshi nakamoto has been for years i would really like to know um so i i say that but i also don't want to say anything definitive um, I think that if anybody uses cryptocurrencies or cryptocurrency adjacent projects like Bitcoin, it's good for us to be critical about what's going on. And again, I can direct people to Mark Goodwin and Whitney Webb's reporting on this, but I think that there will be, I think that the power elite is interested in something like Bitcoin. I think if I remember correctly, the US government is one of the largest holders of Bitcoin. So uh, I'm not saying don't use Bitcoin. I do think that Bitcoin has the propensity to be revolutionary technology because it really is a payment system where there is no intermediary. That doesn't mean even if the technology is good, it doesn't mean that we can be careless about how we use it because we understand that the power elite is also interested in it. And again, as Goodwin and Webb had reported, if you look at their article on like tokenize, tokenization, uh, like BlackRock is very interested in Bitcoin right now. They recently debuted a Bitcoin um, exchange traded fund. So as you can see, organizations like BlackRock, the government, intelligence seem to have some interest in this infrastructure. So I'm not saying don't use it. I'm saying that this is kind of an area for critical further research. And it's something where people need to be skeptical maybe skeptical and they need to be careful about how they use any of these technologies. You know, it should be used for good. It shouldn't be used for uh, building financial structures that can be harmful. That's really all I have. Thank you so much for having me on. My unpopular opinion is from the beginning, I've believed Bitcoin is a globalist Trojan horse. That's just my, my view. But, uh, you know, I talked to, to everyone uh, again, thanks uh, for coming on, Stavrula. Your links are in the description. People subscribe to the Stavrula's Substack and Twitter X uh, account. Uh, and thank you for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Thank you.
I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes, Facebook restricts our page, Reddit and Twitter take down posts, and after the Associated Press mentioned Geopolitics and Empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our Pro account. The best free way to help Geopolitics and Empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.